The Tethered Constellations It is no small thing no light discovery to find a river Andromeda and Arcturus and their bright neighbors wheeling for half a summer night around a pole star in the waters. One star or two delicate visitants of streams we are used to see, somewhat by a slight of the eyes, so fine and so fleeting is that apparition. Or the southern waves may show the light not the image of the evening or the morning planet. But this, in a pool of the country Thames at night, is no ripple-lengthened light, it is the startling image of a whole large constellation burning in the flood. These reflected heavens are different heavens. On a darker and more vacant field than that of the real skies, the shape of the lyre or the bear has an altogether new and noble solitude, and the waters play a painter's part in setting their splendid subject free. Two movements shake but do not scatter the still night, the bright flashing of constellations in the deep pool, and the dark flashes of the vague bats flying. The stars in the stream fluctuate with an alien motion. Reversed, estranged, isolated, every shape of large stars escapes and returns, escapes and returns. Fitful in the steady night, those constellations, so few, so whole, and so remote, have a suddenness of gleaming life. You imagine that some unexampled gale might make them seem to shine with such a movement in the veritable sky, yet nothing but deep water, seeming still in its incessant flight and rebound, could really show such altered stars. The flood lets a constellation fly, as Juliet's wanton with a tethered bird, only to pluck it home again. At moments some rhythmic flux of the water seems about to leave the darkly set, widely spaced bear absolutely at large, to dismiss the great stars and refuse to imitate the skies, and all the water is obscure, then one broken star returns, then fragments of another, and a third and a fourth flit back to their noble places, brilliantly vague, wonderfully visible, mobile, and unalterable. There is nothing else at once so keen and so elusive. The Aspen Poplar had been in captive flight all day, but with no such vanishings as these. The dimmer constellations of the soft night are reserved by the skies. Hardly is a secondary star seen by the large and vague eyes of the stream. They are blind to the Pleiades. There is a little kind of star that drowns itself by hundreds in the river Thames the many-rayed silver-white seed that makes journeys on all the winds up and down England and across it in the end of summer. It is a most expert traveler, turning a little will a tiptoe wherever the wind lets it rest, and speeding on those pretty points when it is not flying. The streets of London are among its many highways, for it is fragile enough to go far in all sorts of weather. But it gets disabled if a rough gust tumbles it on the water, so that its finely feathered feet are wet. On gentle breezes it is able to cross dry shod, walking the waters. All unlike is this pilgrim star to the tethered constellations. It is far adrift. It goes singly to all the winds. It offers thistle plants, or whatever is the flower that makes such delicate ashes, to the tops of many thousand hills. Doubtless the farmer would rather have to meet it in battalions than in these invincible units astray. But if the farmer owes it a lawful grudge, there is many a rigid riverside garden wherein it would be a great pleasure to sow the thistles of the nearest pasture. Series Runaway
One can hardly be dull possessing the pleasant imaginary picture of a municipality hot in chase of a wild crop at least while the charming quarry escapes, as it does in Rome. The municipality does not exist that would be nimble enough to overtake the Roman growth of green in the high places of the city. It is true that there have been the famous captures those in the Colosseum, and in the Baths of Caracalla, moreover a less conspicuous running to earth takes place on the Appian Way, in some miles of the solitude of the Campania, where men are employed in weeding the roadside. They slowly uproot the grass and lay it on the ancient stones rows of little corpses for sweeping up, as at upper tooting, one wonders why. The governors of the city will not succeed in making the Via Appia look busy, or its strict stones suggestive of a thriving commerce. Again, at the cemetery within the now torn and shattered Aurelian wall by the Porta San Paolo, they are often mowing of buttercups. A light of laughing flowers along the grass is spread, says Shelley, whose child lies between Keats and the pyramid. But a couple of active scythes are kept at work their summer, and spring not that the grass is long, for it is much overtopped by the bee orchis, but because flowers are not to laugh within reach of the civic vigilance. Yet, except that it is overtaken and put to death in these accessible places, the wild summer growth of Rome has a prevailing success and victory. It breaks all bounds, flies to the summits, lodges in the sun, swings in the wind, takes wing to find the remotest ledges, and blooms aloft. It makes light of the 16th century, of the 17th, and of the 18th. As the historic ages grow cold it banters them alike. The flagrant flourishing statue, the haughty facade, the broken pediment, and Rome is chiefly the city of the broken pediment, are the opportunities of this vagrant garden in the air. One certain church, that is full of attitude, can hardly be aware that a crimson snapdragon of great stature, and many stalks and blossoms is standing on its furthest summit tiptoe against its sky. The cornice of another church in the fair middle of Rome lifts out of the shadows of the streets a row of accidental marigolds. Impartial to the antique, the medieval, the Renaissance early and late, the newer modern, this wild summer finds its account in Traverton and Tufa, reticulated work, brick, stucco and stone. A bird of the air carries the matter, or the last sea wind, somber and soft, or the latest tramontana, gold and blue, has lodged in a little fertile dust the wild grass, wild wheat, wild oats. If Venus had her runaway, after whom the Elizabethans raised hue and cry, this is Ceres. The municipal authorities, hot-foot, cannot catch it. And, worse than all, if they pause, dismayed, to mark the flight of the agile fugitive safe on the arc of a flying buttress, or taking the place of the fallen mosaics and colored tiles of a twelfth-century tower, and in any case inaccessible, the grass grows under their discomfited feet. It actually casts a flush of green over their city, Piazza, the wide light gray pavements so vast that to keep them weeded would need an army of workers. That army has not been employed, and grass grows in a small way, but still beautifully, in the wide space around which the tramway circles. Perhaps a hatred of its delightful presence is what chiefly prompts the civic government in Rome to the effort to turn the piazza into a square. The shrub is to take the place not so much of the pavement as of the importunate grass.
for it is hard to be beaten and the weed does so prevail, is so small and so dominant. The sun takes its part, and one might almost imagine a sensitive municipality in tears, to see grass running, overhead and underfoot, through the third, which is in truth the fourth, Rome. When I say grass I use the word widely. Italian grass is not turf, it is full of things, and they are chiefly aromatic. No richer scents throng each other, close and warm, than these from a little hand space of the grass one rests on, within the walls, or on the plain, or in the Sabine, or the Alban hills. Moreover, under the name I will take leave to include lettuce, as it grows with a most welcome surprise on certain ledges of the Vatican. That great and beautiful palace is piled, at various angles, as it were house upon house, here magnificent, here careless, but with nothing pretentious and nothing furtive. And outside one lateral window on a ledge to the sun, prospers this little garden of random salad. Buckingham Palace has nothing whatever of the Vatican dignity, but one cannot well think of little cheerful cabbages sunning themselves on any parapet it may have round a corner. Moreover, in Italy the vegetables the table ones have a wildness, a suggestion of the grass, from lands at liberty for all the tilling. Wildish peas, wilder asparagus the field asparagus which seems to have disappeared from England, but of which Herrick boasts in his manifestations of frugality, and strawberries much less than halfway from the small and darkling ones of the woods to the pale and corpulent of the gardens, and with nothing of the wild fragrance lost these are all Italian things of savage savor and simplicity. The most cultivated of all countries, the Italy of tillage, is yet not a garden, but something better, as her city is yet not a town, but something better, and her wilderness something better than a desert. In all the three there is a trace of the little flying heels of the runaway.